if you're able, you can stand for the scripture. Um, the scripture lesson today is from Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he may not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a, a great white throne and and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, good morning. Uh, we are going to be walking through today uh, Revelation 19:11 through 2015. You see in your bulletin that chapter 20 is what's printed. Uh, and the reason for that is this is a really long passage. Uh, but we're going to spend the large majority of our time in chapter 20. And today we're continuing our sermon series on the book of Revelation, and we've seen, if you've been with us, that the book of Revelation has given his church an incredible look, an incredible gift, excuse me, a look behind the veil. And what we've seen is that Revelation is not primarily about prediction, but it does give us a glimpse into the future, but rather Revelation was written to particular churches to encourage and challenge them as they strive to follow Jesus in uncertain times. And John does this through writing down for us a vision from God 
that gives us a glimpse into what we await. And therefore, as we look at this passage written to the first century church, it's not difficult to see how this text is also a great encouragement to us today. Because we too live in a time of uncertainty. It's actually the same time because Jesus has, written, has risen, and yet we are still waiting for him to come back. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated, and in that sense it has come, and yet we still live in a world where it is hard to see this each day. Our friends and family still pass away. Sin is still prevalent among us, and it tears through our communities and even our own hearts. And this is so much the case that if we're honest, it makes us in our darkest moments uncertain and doubtful that Christ has even risen. Has evil really been defeated? And so God has given us this book to provide clarity of his victory in the midst of our uncertainty and doubt. Because we too, like these churches in Revelation, are prone to wander. In these uncertain times, we are tempted to make Lord the same things as these churches, whether that's pleasure through numbing, whether that's work, whether that's doctrine, or something else. And so God has given us this book as a course corrector to remind us of the real path of history so that we might faithfully follow him. And finally, we too long for Jesus' return. See, we're weary, and we long for God to make things right again. And we long for this whether we're a Christian or you're visiting us here today, because all of us understand that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. And so God has given us this book to comfort us, that he is a God of action, who will not let injustice slide, and that he is the victor. And so in today's passage, we can't talk, possibly talk uh, in great detail about every point, but there's one, if there's one thing that I want us to take away from this text, and possibly the main book of the entire book of Revelation, the main point of the entire book of Revelation, it's this. Jesus wins. Jesus is the victor. See, in Revelation, we see that there is more at work beyond this physical world. And we innately know this even if we struggle with perceiving a spiritual reality. That's why one psychologist named Ernest Becker, who is not a Christian, writes in his book, The Denial of Death, this. We don't want to admit that we are fundamentally dishonest about reality, that we do not really control our lives. We don't want to admit that we do not stand alone, that we always rely on something that transcends us. And so John's vision throughout this book has depicted this struggle, this spiritual struggle through the image of five beasts. In Revelation 18, which was the text we read during Easter, he talks about the defeat of Babylon, or the harlot, which is a manifestation of the city of man. In Revelation 13, he talks about the beasts of the sea in the land, where the beasts of the sea is a manifestation of worldly government that persecutes the people of God. In this time, it was primarily Rome. He talks about the beast of the land, who's also known as the false prophet who uh, enacts religious and philosophical deception. And in Revelation 19, he defeats these beasts. And he also speaks about people with the mark of the beasts, who are people who are swept up in persecution or swept up in deceiving. But now we come to our text today. And uh, what we see is that the most fierce beast has not been defeated. The final beast, the dragon, who is Satan, is still to be defeated. And so the big question of chapter 20 is this. What about the dragon? What do we do with that? See, what John has laid out for us over the past few chapters is like 
that game at fairs, if you've ever played it, that duck hunt game, where he's just ding, ding to each beast. And what you're awaiting is for the dragon to be dealt with. Or if that example doesn't kind of get to you of what he's doing literarily in this text, uh, I've entitled the sermon Dungeons and Dragons. uh, And it's basically like a video game. If you've played Super Mario, you know the whole way you're waiting for the final boss for it to be defeated. And so there's this anticipation of what's going to happen to the dragon. And so what's the problem in this text? Well, the problem is that we're in a war. More particularly, as Paul writes in Ephesians 6.12, we are in a struggle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. And in Revelation 20, we find the crescendo of this journey in the final battle, the defeat of the dragon. But this, this problem is even more complicated than we tend to think. Because we see in this text that it is a catastrophe. See, Revelation 19.11 through 20.15 is a salvation vision. And to understand the salvation vision, we have to see the catastrophe. As Eugene Peterson, one pastor, writes, salvation is the answer to catastrophe. See, although there's much beauty in the midst of the catastrophe, because God is still at work even now, and we see the marks of his grace in our communities and in creation itself, Nothing is exempt from this catastrophe. And it's more complicated than we think because we need salvation. See, this is hard for us because this catastrophe is something that we can't fix ourselves. The point is that we need a savior. We can't DIY our salvation. This is something that Ray and I are thinking through as we're kind of thinking through a a house that we had an offer accepted on. What can we do and what can't we do? And we've had to wrestle with the reality that I'm not uh, a fix-it kind of guy. Uh, But even more so with salvation, we can't pay someone to do it for us. We need Jesus to ride in on a white horse, as he will in chapter 19, and do something about it. See, salvation is the action of God, and we are not the hero of the story. And it's also more complicated than we think because we need judgment. Things need to be made right. And this is why verses 11 through 15 are good news. The catastrophe is more complicated than we think because we need salvation and we need justice. We need a holy God in whom there is no evil and there is no sin. And finally, it's more complicated than we think because this last beast, the dragon, is the worst of them all. 22 describes this dragon as he who identify or describes this dragon who identifies as Satan as the ancient serpent. If you've read Genesis 3, you know that this reference is to uh, the serpent in the garden, who is the devil. It references the fall and the very start of sin. And so Jesus here, in order to bring salvation, must go straight to the source. This is why one commentator writes, John suddenly sees the dragon, strong, crafty, ugly. It is the old serpent, cunning and deceptive. And in order to describe him more accurately, he is also called the devil, that is slanderer, and Satan, that is adversary or false accuser. But there's a shift, and it begins in the very beginning of 1911. See, where the problem is seen in the context of this passage, everything leading up to it, the shift begins at the very beginning of 1911, where Jesus shows up on a white horse. 
See, here Jesus shows up as a warrior king with a different weapon. It's like uh, that movie in The Lord of the Rings, Two Towers, where Gandalf shows up at Helm's Deep on a white horse, ready to save the people from their impending destruction. See, amongst all the intricacies and mystery of chapter 20, which I will briefly address, the fundamental point of Revelation 19 through 20 is that there has been a shift. King Jesus has showed up on the scene, and he will bring to an end all the forces of evil, Satan himself and the existence of sin altogether. That's why Peterson writes, the last word is that every form and source of evil is banished from history. And we see that this King Jesus in chapter 19 and verse 11 is faithful. He protects his people, that he is true, that he keeps his promises, that he judges in righteousness. He is not corrupt. We want justice, and Jesus is the one who can bring it. In verse 12, we see that his eyes are like a flame of fire. And this is an image again of justice. Fire purified metal, and Jesus has come to redeem the world. He's wearing many diadems. This is no mere knight. He is a king, the king of kings, and he has dominion and authority. We see in verse 13 that he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. His reign is established through his sacrifice, as we celebrated on Good Friday. And we see in verse 13 that he is called the word of God. We know that John 1 says that Jesus is the word. And in verse 15, he is not only the word, but his weapon is the word. It's the gospel. And this is referencing Isaiah 11. And we see that Jesus brings salvation not through human instruments of war, but through his mouth. It is the gospel that confronts evil. And so Jesus does not use the weapon of destruction to bring salvation. He uses the gospel. But how is the gospel, how is Jesus the answer to this problem? Well, we see in chapter 20 that Jesus is our great savior, our great king, and our great judge. We see in verses 1 through C that our savior binds the dragon. And this leads to the question, when did this happen? Well, it began in Jesus's, it began at Jesus' incarnation. See, Matthew 4 uses the same word in Greek, binding, to describe Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And as a result, Jesus begins casting out demons. See, because Satan has been bound in Jesus' life and ministry, Satan's power is curtailed. And we also see this in Luke 10, where Jesus has just sent out 72 missionaries. And they come back rejoicing with these words, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And then they say that Satan fall from heaven, which is strikingly similar to 23, where he is thrown into the pit. And so it already happened. This began in Jesus's life and ministry. The binding of Satan is not something that we await. It's something that is happening or has happened. And we still uh, have the benefits of now. But what does it mean that Satan is bound? Well, it means that Satan, who is called the deceiver, does not have the power to stop the gospel from spreading. That's what it means. And we have evidence of this in our history. There are more Bible translations now than there ever have been before. There's a growing church in Africa and Asia. We don't believe that everything is getting better and better in all ways. But how might your life change to know that Satan is bound? See, God here gives us a glimpse behind the veil to remind the church that Satan has been bound so that we might have confidence that despite churches closing, 
despite pastoral scandals, despite a growing skepticism in the West, God's, uh, God's kingdom cannot be bound. It will grow and it will survive. This is the very thing that equipped the early church uh, on their deathbed for a martyr to say the blood of Christian is seed. Meaning that despite all the tri trials and suffering of this time, the church will survive. It will even grow. But we see in verse thir three this really strange thing. It says that the dragon will be released for a little while. What's that about? Well, what we see is that he's not bound in every sense. This is why Hendrickson writes, a dog securely bound with a long and heavy chain can do great damage within the circle of his imprisonment. And so Satan is not bound in every sense, but he cannot ultimately destroy the church. The gospel will grow and the church will survive. And we see in verses four through six, secondly, that our king saves his people. In verse 4, we see that the souls of Christians who die before Christ returns will come to life and reign with him. And this is a great comfort because it means our loved ones who know Jesus are with him. How are they with him? Well, verse 6 talks about a first resurrection. And this doesn't mean that there's two physical resurrections. There's only one general resurrection, which happens when Christ comes back. But rather, as we see in verse 4, our souls will be resurrected and we will be with God as we await the resurrection of our body. And fundamentally, this is a mystery. But what's important is that we will be with God. Well, how long will we be with God? The thousand years, one of the very confusing parts uh, that people uh, talk about a lot. Well, a thousand years is just symbolic for a long time. It's until Christ returns. And how will we reign? Well, most importantly, we will be with God in heaven. And the dominion which God created us for in Genesis 2 will begin to be restored as we reign with him. And what we see is that we will live with Christ and share with Christ in his reign. And thirdly, the gospel is the answer to the problem because our Savior King defeats evil once and for all, as we see in 7 through 10. See, 7 through 10 paints a picture of the final battle. And this is the same battle which Jesus has ridden out on a white horse to fight in Revelation 19. And it's the same battle that we talked about in Revelation 16. The point is not to be chronological, but to paint a clear picture of who wins. And in addition, John references the book of Ezekiel when he says these words, Gog and Magog. What's that about? Well, in Ezekiel 38, Gog and Magog refer to the Seleucid Empire at the height of their power. And the point is that oppressed Israel cannot be ultimately destroyed, even by this great force. And God does not give up on his people. He will save them. And here in Revelation, we see what one commentator, Beale, calls a, univer a universalization of the Ezekiel prophecy. See, here we do not see a particular nation, but the whole world gathered. And we know this because of the expression, the four corners of the earth. It is all people gathered who seek to destroy the people of God. But what we see is that God's people stand on the winning side. Jesus wins. The camp of the saints in the beloved city in verse 9 is the church throughout history. And so once again, in the end, Jesus wins. And finally, we see that the gospel is the answer to the problem in verses 11 through 15 because the great judge brings justice. See, seated on the throne is Jesus. 
and he is the one who judges in righteousness, as we saw in chapter 19. And he brings out this book, the book of life, and it says that he judged each one of them according to what they had done. And I think this is really hard for us to read if we're honest. But what I want us to see is that it's good news for two reasons. First, it's good news because we want to serve a God of justice. See, to see the good news here, we have to see that God's justice and even his judgment is not incompatible with his love. That's why one writer, Becky Pippert, writes in her book, think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might toward a stranger? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. And Pippert then quotes E.H. Gifford and writes, Human love here offers a true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. And she concludes, If I, a flawed, narcissistic person, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his entire being. So in Revelation 20, we see Jesus, the great judge, destroying the cancer of sin forever. And this is good news. But it's also good news because this judge shows great mercy. The text shows that many are written into the book of life. And if you're in Christ, you are written into the book of life. And if you're here investigating Christianity, my prayer is that if you hear nothing else today, that you would hear that Jesus has come onto the scene. And that's good news because we can't fix the catastrophe on our own merit. But what would it look like to follow him? How might everything be changed if you were written into the book of life? And so the good news of the gospel is that Jesus brings salvation in the midst of catastrophe. He binds the dragon. The gospel will go out and the church cannot ultimately be curtailed. Our king saves his people. Those in Christ who die before his return will be with him. Our savior king defeats evil and sin once and for all. Jesus is the victor and it is sealed and it is finished. And the great judge brings justice. We serve a just God and a merciful God. But briefly as we close, how does this unfold in our lives practically? What does all this literary language and poetic device mean for us? Well, if you're here today and don't know Jesus, this passage in the entire book of Revelation is urging ourselves to put ourselves under the care of this king. He is faithful, he is true, and he judges in righteousness. And he loves you so much that he died for those who despised him and will return to bring an end to evil and sin. This is the king who we want to serve. And maybe others of us have learned extensively about this Jesus, but we come to church and look to the Bible simply to become better people and to follow a wise teacher. We might call Jesus rabbi like the Pharisees did and appreciate the golden rule, but we do not see him as the Lord of the universe or our king. Well, as Eugene Peterson writes about Revelation 20, by setting Armageddon before us as a vision of salvation, this pastor John prevents us from thoughtlessly reducing salvation to good behavior, supposing that the consequence of salvation is to make us nice, to install good manners, 
and to make us consumers. Well, friends, Jesus came as our king, and this is good news because the catastrophe is something we cannot fix, even with our good behavior. But finally, for those who follow Jesus, I want us to be encouraged today in this text by three things. First, the survival and the growth of the church is not up to you. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Jesus calls us to make disciples, to share the gospel, and we vow in church membership to study the purity and peace of the church. So we are agents, and God uses us, but Satan is bound. The church cannot ultimately be destroyed, and the gospel going out cannot be thwarted. What would it be like to live in a secular age and share the gospel with our friends, neighbors, and family, knowing that Satan is bound, that ultimately he does not have the power? Second, Jesus wins. The war is already won, and so take comfort. He is faithful, and this look beyond the veil is a look into our secured future. Do you know that the biggest battle which you will ever has, have to fight has already been won for you? Would that encourage us in our struggles now that that battle is won? And finally, during this time of Easter, death is not the end of the story. What a comfort in a time with so much death. My last few weeks have felt like they've been filled with death and sickness. One family member continues a battle with Parkinson's and most recently cancer. Another family member was moved to a hospice last week. And a family friend suddenly died of a brain aneurysm last week. And I know that in this community, the past few years, we have experienced the death of loved ones from cancer, from COVID, and from other things. And yet, friends, death is not the end of the story. Christ has risen, and we serve a God who brings dead things to life. That's why one priest, Alexander Shimeman, writes, the most important and most profound question of the Christian faith must be how and from where did death arise? And why has it become stronger than life? Why has death become so powerful that the world itself has become a kind of global cemetery a place where a collection of people condemned to death live either in fear or terror, or in their efforts to forget about death, find themselves rushing around one great big burial plot. But hear these words. He continues, Christianity is not reconciliation with death. It is the revelation of death, and it reveals death because it is the revelation of life. Christ is this life, and only if Christ is life is death what Christianity proclaims it to be namely the enemy to be destroyed and not a mystery to be explained. And so, friends, Christ has defeated the great enemy. Jesus wins and death is not the end of the story. And rather, for those of us in Christ, the book of life is the beginning. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are a God who does not abandon his people. We thank you that as we will sing shortly, the Lamb has overcome. We thank you that the battle's done and the victory is won. Jesus, would you, through this time in your word and through your table, nourish us with your life, the only one who can give it to us. We lift all these things in your name. Amen.